Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring and fascinating women who talk about their projects as well as their own lives as evolving women. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. And if you like the podcast, you'll love my newly updated companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. Learn more at NicoleChristina.com. Well, I have my coffee in my hand and my little Jack Russell Sparky right beside me. So let's begin. Today we have a special treat. Alua Arthur is the founder of Going With Grace, an end-of-life organization which supports people as they answer the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so I may live presently and die peacefully? As a death doula and attorney, the perspective Alua has gained from her unique 15-year career allows her to help her clients focus on the practical and emotional needs while contemplating the end of life. She's a thought leader in the field, and she's committed to bringing awareness to death and dying and consequently increasing joy in life and living. And I might add, her Facebook page includes beautiful videos of her addressing some of the important questions we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Alua. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I am too. I followed you and we finally got our schedule straightened out and I'm delighted. I think that what you have to say is so important and not always so easy to talk about. Yeah, thank you. I think so too. I think it's getting easier maybe as we have more awareness around it, but I love to keep having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so what's a typical... What's a typical day like for you when you're working with someone? How does this look? I mean, I've talked to people about my excitement in interviewing you and that you're a death doula. And these are, you know, smart women. They did not know what a death doula was. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that is and what that means? Gladly. So first of all, it's like a, I think the term is new. The concept itself is as old as humankind itself. But it's a, something that's re-emerging in society, and lots of people are just finding out about it for the first time. What I do is I work with people to prepare for death, no matter what that looks like. And it generally happens in three different stages. When somebody is healthy, helping them get all of their plans together, starting to think about what the end of their life might eventually look like. And that works typically when people have come into some awareness of the fact that one day they're going to die. Next, when somebody has a terminal illness or a diagnosis of a sort, I help them and the family practically prepare for dying, not only getting their affairs in order, but also creating a dying that looks like what they would like it to look like to make it as peaceful as possible. And then after a death, I help families wrap up the affairs afterward. So it's in three different areas, whatever preparing for death looks like to that individual, I am trained and willing most of the time willing to do to support. Uh, I think a lot of times we maybe have an image of doulaing as 
the person who's just sitting there present, maybe by the bedside. But my work entails a lot more than just being present for death itself. Um, I'm there to provide support across the board. Mm-hmm. We were chatting earlier that uh, you majored in uh, psychology and sociology. Uh, sounds like a dual major. When did you know that this was something you were interested in and, and were good at? Death? Uh, doing this kind of work, being a death doula. Yeah. When did it, when you know, did it? I think it developed. It really developed. My interest in death came very organically, um, and pretty serendipitously. I'd actually never much considered it through most of my life up until almost six years ago when I was on a bus in Cuba. And the way that I ended up on that bus with this particular woman is quite a story, but I'll spare you. And we, we met in line for the bus and then ended up getting, the, I ended up getting the last seat on the bus. We chatted for a bit and she had uterine cancer. She was 36 years old and starting to think about her death because of her disease. And it really struck me at that moment that I had never really considered mine. While I talked to her though, I got pretty sad, first of all, and also frustrated that there didn't seem to be a lot of people that were talking about dying. She was sharing things with me that she said she hadn't shared with anybody ever. And I understand that there's a way that you can talk to a stranger on a faraway, faraway land uh, that you maybe can't talk to people in your life that way. Yet we got very personal and very deep very quickly. And I started talking to her about her death um, with no filters really. And we went there and during that bus ride, I. I wished that there were people that prepared other people to die. And that's when I got very clear that this was the work that I was going to be doing. I had been practicing law for 10 years prior to that moment. And I took a sharp left turn and haven't looked back ever since. So did, did mm -hmm. people in your life uh, question your decision? Everybody. Mm. Everybody. It was more like, uh, you sure? Death? And <laughs> honestly, I did it to myself. I do it to myself constantly. <laughs> like I could have picked anything. Um, but this was the one. It took root in my body. Uh, it kind of felt like it had always been there because after that decision, I came back home and became singularly focused on how we die and preparing people for it and how we do it now and how I think it really could be and started stumping for it um, with my family members at parties with friends. I just talked death nonstop and it hasn't really stopped. And I swear I'm not a drag to be around. Uh, no, uh, anybody who sees you can see sort of the the light emanating from your your face uh, in your Facebook videos or your YouTube. You know, you you really make that distinction that this is not a downer. This is not about sadness. It's really about appreciating the life you have right now. Yeah, I thank you. I appreciate that acknowledgement. And you know what? I'd really agree that that's what preparing for death and living in the conversation of death constantly provides if we choose, but it requires choice. What is the, a, a common stumbling block you come upon once you are hired by a family? And it's probably, I guess it depends on the situation, but what's a common part that 
that feels difficult, um, that you have to be more patient um, around when you're working with people? So I'm not always hired by the person who is dying themselves. This is when we're talking about people that have a terminal disease. Sometimes I'm hired by the family members to come in and talk to the person that's dying. And it's tricky because if they haven't been told or they're not comfortable with the idea or, and let me backtrack, it's rare that people are just like, oh yeah, I'm dying and it's fine. Um, you know, but some people have a certain level of awareness of it and comfort that others don't. Um, so if they don't yet have some awareness that it's happening, it can be very delicate and require a lot of finesse to bring that up and to bring it into the space so that we can deal with what needs to get dealt with so that they can die peacefully. Um, that's a, that's a major thing. When I'm working with people that are still healthy and just thinking about the end of their lives, a major stumbling block is, oh, it doesn't matter, I don't care what happens because I won't be here anyway. And the challenge though is that if we don't decide what we want to have happen to our bodies or to our things or to our digital imprint, somebody's gonna have to deal with it at some point. And that's not something that we generally want the people in our lives to do while they're also grieving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that mm -hmm. primarily, I don't care what happens, I won't be here. It's like, ooh, but you care about the people, don't you? Mm -hmm. And they yeah. care. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a gift to them to have your affairs in order. Majorly. Mm -hmm. Majorly. Majorly. It, I, do you think I, it's human nature just to sort of postpone this whole thing? And just in general, perhaps we don't think ahead very well in general. I mean, do you think that's accurate? Partially, I think we I think we do look ahead a little bit because a lot of us do make plans. Um, we're certainly not a culture that like lives in the now. But I think the larger problem is this human expectation of time. We all expect that we have time. We never think that our lives could end tomorrow or next month or next year. We expect to live. We expect to heal. We don't expect to get disease. We really don't expect to age. You know, I even I find myself looking in the mirror occasionally and being surprised by my gray hairs. But it's like, well, of course, it's it's what happens. But we don't we don't we expect to have time. And when we find that we don't, it can be shocking and startling. And then it's like a scramble to get done all these things that we always said that we do that we didn't get around to. I'm thinking of um, some of the research I've read and just uh, understanding some of the issues that come up with people, clients um, who are, we'll call, we'll say post middle age, and they talk about regrets often. And there's books about it. I'm sure you, you know, you're familiar, the regrets of the dying and all. Is that something that you uh, have conversations about with your clients? Yeah, they often come up organically. But yes, we do talk about that. Um, when particularly talking to somebody who is can, like looking at the end of their lives, it's coming up. There is a conversation around what didn't get done, what they weren't able to complete. And in an effort to make peace with the life that they've lived already. Um, and so that can get pretty juicy and emotional and but there's also space for freedom in that like 
well, this is what I did do with my life. And that's just going to have to suffice because that's all I got. Mm. Mm -hmm. And what about, I, I have a client who uh, is, is dealing with this really tricky situation where her mother's terrified of going to hell and um, she's aged and she's, you know, it's not going to be too long before she dies. And is that something that you also deal with? Some maybe religious beliefs or, or, or fear around, I wasn't good enough and I'm going to uh, sort of meet my maker and it's it's not going to be in a good way? Absolutely. Um, my role, I find that my role is really to support people to get clearer on what their beliefs are and then trying to reconcile those beliefs with the life that they actually lived. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it sounds very difficult. I mean, it sounds like that's a lot of work. I'm wondering, can you maybe give a a little example or um, uh, how does that look in real life? It looks like a lot of talking. It looks like people being open to explore. It looks like considering responsibility for the choices that we've made rather than some like this didn't happen because this other thing happened and so I wasn't able to do it. But being in ownership of the choices that we've made in our lives that have brought us to this point. Um, I had a, a conversation with not a client I think it was casual either casual or like via Facebook messenger with some context that didn't quite work but a young woman who has his fears of hell herself yet doesn't but sees a lot of beauty in the world and in living and in life and through our conversation she on her own started to reconcile that the God that she knows is not sadistic and mean, but in fact loving and has created a lot of beauty. And that created a lot of space for her to say, well, that makes it a little bit easier for me then to return to if I know that, or if I feel as though he's capable of creating this beauty and he's held me so beautifully in this beauty while I've been living, then maybe he won't be ferocious after I die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it so looks like a lot of openness and discussion and question asking. And, and I'm wondering about forgiveness and are there situations where you may be involved in, I don't know if mediating is the right word, but having people come to the bedside who have been on the outs with your client. Is that part of the work where you might be bringing people together or helping that process of forgiveness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, rather, I have yet to actually mediate at the bedside, but I have mediated to the point where somebody was open to seeing an estranged family member. Family dynamic support is one of the big things I do. Either there's dissension between siblings about how to care for a parent or, you know, mother's estranged from her daughter who's dying and daughter really wants to see her mom again or vice versa. Um, I haven't sat there with them, but I've certainly worked to bring people together to make that possible. Because that is one of the major ones, healing relationships and who we've loved and how we've been in relationship with others is one of the major things that comes up as people die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about how deeply meaningful this is and, 
and how intense it must be. And I wonder how it is for you. How do you kind of uh, go about your day and uh, make sure that you are recharged so you're available for all of this, you know, really important but deep and I imagine it's sometimes challenging work. Heck yeah. Yeah. I cry a lot. Um, mm. I mean, I like my emotions and I'm comfortable with them. And so I play around in them often. <laughs> Um, but I also, you know, I do regular self-care things. I meditate daily. I exercise often. I need exercise anyway, just to stay sane, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I, I talk to friends. I have a solid social circle. I do regular self-care. I take baths. I eat salty, crunchy things. I really like potato chips. And so I do the thing. I've never that. heard that is on the list of the self care, but I like it. Yeah, the salty crunchy is my jam. Like that's a good spot for me. Um, yeah, so I, I I give myself a lot of permission to be human and to need time by myself or to not have it right. I mean, it is a practice, but um, you know, recognizing that a big part of my work is in holding a container for other people, I get to hold my own pretty well solidly as well, right? Like I often give this analogy when people ask, like how do you avoid burnout or how do you stay sane yourself? And I make a lot of space to consider my own feelings and my own pain and whatever's going on. We all know that saying you can't pour from an empty cup and it's true, but what if you haven't even stopped to check to see if the cup is cracked like we, I need to stop and like do inventory on myself first before I can be fully present and useful to anybody else. And how exactly, what's the process of that filling, uh, checking in to see, because I think a lot of our listeners can very much appreciate having, having an empty cup. Most of them are women. Most of them, you know, have, uh, done multiple roles, different caretaking. Many of my clients will just come and sit down and say, I'm tired, yeah. you know, um, and, and we talk about, you know, self-care, of course, but how do you check in to see what the level is of the self-care, you know, in this, in this cup that you describe? Uh, my meditation practice supports that a lot um, because there's, it's rare that I am in this like silent, blissful place, but I am in space by myself for a while. And when an emotion comes, checking in to see where it's pointing to, because I believe that, well, at least let me speak for myself, my emotions point to where the, the wound is somehow. And so if it's resentment I'm feeling, well, where am I feeling like I'm not being hurt or taken advantage of or so on and so forth? And then looking at those places, allowing that emotion in, and being with it rather than trying to fix it. Um, I sit with my emotions quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I sit and with them a lot. Did you learn that? Because that is something that, you know, as a therapist, that's a lot of the work that mm. we do is tolerating discomfort. How did you learn how to do that so skillfully? Mm -hmm. I think by not doing it so well for so long. <laughs> I see. It's an it's an evolution. Yeah, yeah, it was necessary at some point. I um, 
At the tail end of my practice of law, I had a clinical depression that just was brutal and I wasn't feeling anything. And I remember being so terrified that I was devoid of feeling because otherwise I'm highly emotive. And so when I started feeling things again, I really clung to them and started very much pay attention to the mm. emotions because they had been gone for so long. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so just really spent a lot of time feeling them because I prefer to not feeling anything at all. Yeah, you. it sounds like you welcomed them because that, that deadening was so uncomfortable, which is what people talk about with depression. It's not sadness, it's deadness. Deadness, hope, like just bleakness. I mean, I normally wear a lot of colors. And during that time, I was down to gray and black and mm. everybody was freaking out. They're like, what is wrong? And for a while, I was like, oh, no, it's fine. But it, nothing was fine. They could tell. Everybody could tell. Um, was but there that was a, a result? deadness. Yeah, was that a result of the work you were doing, do you think? The work itself was great. I think it was actually a result of me not being happy with what I was doing, being burnt out by what I was doing, and not stopping to check in. I just kept pushing. I just kept going. I was working not even long hours. Uh, my setup was pretty cushy because I was doing a, a nonprofit incorporation and tax exemption work legal work and I was working with community organizations that wanted to work in low um, low income communities like I was doing otherwise heart-centered work mm -hmm. it just wasn't filling me in the ways that I needed it to and I was looking externally for a lot of things to fill me um, I was traveling a lot yeah that otherwise sounds like a really really great thing but I was doing it for avoidance you know I um, I was hanging out a lot I wasn't spending a lot of time by myself I wasn't doing any inventory any personal checking in. I was just kept pushing. But mm -hmm. in pushing, I was pushing away the pain uh, until it got to a fever pitch and I couldn't avoid it anymore. Boy, you know, it's so interesting to to hear that method of coping. And now you are facing it. I mean, it, it it's you're on the totally opposite end of the pole, right? You're like, let me have it. I like I like grief. Yup, check. Yep. I'll do. You check. know, Bring sadness, it. regret. You know, whatever. Jealousy. Blah blah blah. I can. I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna allow myself to feel this along with my client. Absolutely, because I find that feeling it, like when when we get a chance to feel it, particularly, I watch this as people are ill and getting close to the end of their lives, that some of the filter starts to come off, that it becomes harder to hide those bits of ourselves that we're trying to hide. We do become, some people become very exposed, not everybody. Um, some retract. And when there is like an honesty of emotion, even if it's happening privately, I find that people feel a lot more reconciled with the idea of life starting to end because of its authenticity. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Uh, it's, I think I get it. Can you say it in maybe another, another way? Okay. I, I think I get it, but I might have lost you. Go okay, ahead. I'll do my best. When I, I'm finding that when we have a chance to feel our emotions, and it allows us to live authentically, authentic living is one of the priorities I find for people that are dying. Mm. And most people 
do become far more authentic near the end of their lives. Some don't, some retract away from the fullness expression of themselves. Is that clear? I think so. And okay. and I'm, I'm just trying to sort of see this as this parallel process where they're becoming more authentic. You know, the masks are coming off, the reality is set in, and you are in your most authentic self as well, because you're you're with them and you're there to usher them through. Absolutely. I can't, I, it's really a virtue in my work is I don't ask people to go places where I myself am not willing to go. Mm. I won't do that. Mm -hmm. That to me is, is out of integrity and I'm not going to be effective either. Mm -hmm. I believe. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know much. I just have a lot of ideas about how things work. <laughs> Do you think that your work will look different in 10 years as you're sitting with your your dying clients? Uh, I do, but for a like a historical reason in that the generations are shifting and there's going to be a lot more conversation around dying. And so I think that there'll be a lot less hiding from it, which means that people might be more open. Mm -hmm. That's I what I, at least I like to think. Yeah, so culturally, it'll be maybe easier <laughs> for you to start the conversation because people will already have been exposed to that and know people who are working maybe with, with people like yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think as we see more dying and it's less behind the curtain, we all start to live in a way that looks like one day we're going to die, which means that we end up living more authentically and more in our emotions and more in eating salty, crunchy things and all the things that we actually want out of life, mm -hmm. you know, such that we don't have to work so hard to reconcile it when we're dying. You want to get an earlier start, I guess, in in living in in that way that is, I mean, I think of it as mindfulness, yeah. um, but there's probably other ways to say it too, and not yeah. frittering away. For sure, yeah. for yeah. sure. What do you think? Um. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I. I think it has to be true that if you're clear that you're going to die, you don't know when, and that's really something that you don't avoid, that that would be one option is that you're much more appreciative and much more, you know, noticing and observing. Um, I could also see it going another way that people might feel um, if they don't have a sense of agency, they might feel hopeless or despondent. Mm, yeah, that's certainly a thing that comes up as well. Um, yeah. One thing that I find really juicy about working at the end of life is like the broad range of human experience and emotion and ways of looking at things, you know, and all of them are welcome including despondency and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, do people, uh, perhaps the family who's hired you, do they keep in contact with you after their loved one has died? Yeah, which I really like. 
Mm-hmm. They do. I mean, sometimes we're working hard to wrap up affairs, and so we're in constant communication, and we end up building um, a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes, you know, there's been several times where I've just given a brief consultation because it looks like there's a week left or so of life, and just working with the family member to make sure that all the basic things are taken care of. And then I kind of, you know, set them free, like, let me know how it goes. And then they'll reach out in a while and let me know that the family member has died and what they were able to get done or not, or what the dying experience was like. And, and then support them in getting support for their grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you have, I, I, I saw, I think in one of your Facebook slash YouTubes when you were sitting down with his family and the grandmother. That's the one I played at uh, at the class I taught, and uh, she was talking about being joyful and um, and do you know the the family I'm talking about sitting yes. around the table? Yeah, and it looked like you had kind of a, a loose leaf notebook kind of going through these are I don't know if you use the five wishes or so do you go through sort of there's a protocol that you bring with you chapter one this is where we start or do you kind of sort of intuit where to start well I have I've created an advanced um, planning tool it includes an advanced directive, but it also includes a death care directive. And it covers all the major areas that are necessary to wrap up affairs after the end of a life so that family members can use it after a death. Uh, but it also does create a lot of opening for talking about emotional and spiritual things. I find that oftentimes people are willing to talk about the practical things and we use the practical as a means to get to other things. But this tool I've created is it's about 30 pages. It's pretty in-depth. And we go through nine different areas, starting with healthcare decision-making, um, desires for life support, care and comfort and treatment of the body, um, after-death care of the body, and disposition of the body, planning funeral, memorial, etc., how the life is going to be celebrated. And we talk about possessions not just the will, but sentimental things and things that you use often and what you want people to do with those, the remainder of your things, like your socks after your death. Um, we also talk about dependent and pet care. And then a lot of biographical information, like the basic like facts that make up a life, social security number, mother's maiden name, place of birth, things like that. And then all the accounts and finances and passwords, cell phone passcodes, all of that. Um, and then the last portion is a bit of a review of life, the experiences in life you've enjoyed, experiences of the senses, anything that, things that you want to say to people, how you want to be remembered. Um, so I use that tool for healthy people when they're starting to think about their dying and then also when people are ill. Um, yet the difference is when people are ill, some of that stuff has already been taken care of and maybe there's like a certain set of concerns and we'll just address those mm, okay I that see. answered your question very thoroughly sorry yeah. about that no, no that's interesting so uh, can you share with us any you know particularly inspiring deaths that you've been a part of I don't know if that I don't want you to break confidentiality um, but is there any particular um, 
client that you'll always remember because it was particularly touching or interesting or uh, unusual? There is one that keeps coming to mind. She wasn't necessarily a client. I was working with a an alternative funeral home here in LA called Friends Funeral Home, which is amazing. They have a lot of low cost and um, just interesting ways to celebrate lives and to have funerals. And she had asked me to show up to support a funeral that was a home funeral that was going to be around the corner from where I lived at the time. So I was walking over there and I saw a friend of mine on the street and she was dressed in all white. We waved at each other. She said she was going nearby. I said, oh my God, so am I. We ended up at the same home. It was one of her friends that had recently died. I knew nothing about this woman beforehand. Um, and I was there in a different capacity. Yet my friend was also present and it was her community and her friends that were, that were honoring a life uh, of their friend. And so I got to be present with them. A woman that I'd never met was really into all of the love that was shared. Her body was laid out beautifully on the bed. There were white roses. Um, her mother was there. Her friends were coming in and out. She'd been dead probably about 12 hours at that point. And I was not there in a professional capacity and that nobody had hired me. Yet I didn't know anybody there except for the person that had asked me to come and my friend. And so I got to be an actual observer, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but with my heart, because it was my friend who was grieving her friend. Um, and it was inspiring in that none of them had had an experience of a home funeral before, yet they were also touched by the experience itself. I hear it with my work, but I take it more as professional feedback, you know, and in this case, I was just watching hearts open and people really ground to the idea that their really good friend had died, yet it felt beautiful somehow. Very inspiring. Very inspiring. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is just imagining this body on the bed with white roses and how different experience that would be than sort of a, a more conventional, maybe sterile church service with a maybe a religious person who's never met this this per the you know the person who had died absolutely it's so intimate it was because it was just a close circle that had been invited there was a memorial later on on the beach for everybody else but this was just her close tight circle of friends and i just mm -hmm. happened to be there and mm -hmm. you know everybody gathered around the bed and held hands and shared memories here or there while she was delayed in honor. And um, then the cremation service came and picked her up and took her away. And then, you know, a few days later, they had the, um, the service on the beach. I also want to say, because I think this is important, she was in her 40s. This was not somebody who we would think, oh, she's lived maybe a very full life and thus we're just going to honor her life the way that it was and celebrate that she got to die on her own terms. She was somebody who otherwise was in the prime of life, um, yet had disease and had died. And yet they still felt so much peace and joy that she had finally was able to die on her, you know, in a way that looked and honored her best. Mm -hmm. Oh, it just sounds so 
it's just so profound. I can't think of any other word, but just how meaningful and how it, it just sounds so different than the way our culture's been going, you know, mm. with little sort of sound bites and, and, and visual stuff and very superficial kinds of values. The idea that you know, there you are with your friend with all different kinds of emotions, with beauty, with sadness. And, um, oh, it just sounds like, you know, you talked about the joy um, of living. And I, I would I would just see that as, as part of part of a kind of joy. Absolutely. Mm. There was. And I, you know, we think of happiness, but I think happy sometimes is too fleeting to describe moments like this because I wouldn't say that there was happiness, but there was joy. It was mm -hmm. deep and it was very rooted and there was laughter. You know, there were t certainly a lot of tears, yeah, but there was a joy. It, 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 I think that that's what grace is. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I named my company Going With Grace. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, it does not hearken to my Christian upbringing. Uh, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Something else I'm talking about. Something else. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say in closing, Lua, that um, any message you want to give our listeners who are thinking, hmm, maybe it's time to start considering some of these, uh, some of this business that... <laughs> I've been avoiding any any other words that you'd like to share. I guess just simply just start. Um, it can be scary and it seems big, but it also has the capacity to make life feel richer and fuller. Mm -hmm. And so it may be tough, but it can also be really beautiful. And you'll probably learn something about yourself or your friends or your family member along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just start, just start. And if you need support, call an end of life planner or a death doula. This is mm -hmm. something that we know how to do and we know how to do well, and we can walk you through the process. Lua, how can people reach you? What, what are, what's the best way to find out more about you and your work? The best way is on my website, which is www.goingwithgrace.com. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm easily found. Uh, there's a contact me button if you'd like to shoot me a message personally. But mm -hmm. my website, goingwithgrace.com, is the best place. And do you, um, I don't know sort of the, the parameters of where you travel to. If somebody on this part of the country wanted to work with you, is that something you might consider? Gladly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a big vision for creating... Um, you know, a nationwide network of death doulas that are all being trained through Going With Grace to do this work everywhere. But until then, we're doing some virtual consultations and in-person consultations. I, I certainly travel in order to meet with families and to do work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just want to thank you so much for talking with me. I think that, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be really touched by this, and, and I'm hoping that they take action as well. Um, I, I wish you the best of luck in, in your work, and it's been a real pleasure. 
Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it too. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.